Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. We've been going through a series of sermons on Advent. Today we're looking at Matthew 1, 18 to 25. So this is the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the season of waiting, of remembering, of thinking about your son. Thank you for his first coming. We do await for his second coming. And I pray that now as we press into your word, that you would give us wisdom, apply these truths to our hearts, give your servant ability to speak truthfully, uh, fill with your spirit and boldly about who you are. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I said earlier, we're right in the the middle, uh, toward the end, actually, of this Advent season. And Advent, as we talked about earlier, is a season of waiting. It's a season of expectation. A season about looking about looking at the whole idea of Jesus' coming. Advent is important because it's been somewhat taken over by the idea of Christmas. There's some overlap between Christmas and Advent, but Christmas has become uh, so saturated by our culture, and it's been so saturated with this idea of of uh, traditions, of holiday parties, of festivities, of decorations, of Black Friday sales. Now, all those things are bad things, but not, they're not really at the heart of Advent, and they are often very far away from this baby born in Bethlehem. And so during this Advent season, we kind of want to get back to what it is. Uh, last week I was um, driving, my, the, the radio was on, my kids were in the back seat, and this Mariah Carey which song, which is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, All I Want for Christmas is You came on, and my daughter's like, oh, I love that Christmas carol. And I'm like, that is not a Christmas carol. <laughs> you know, when, when ki- kids these days, they think that Mariah Carey is a Christmas carol. That's a sign of the apocalypse, I'm telling you. It's a sign that, man, Jesus needs to come because things are twisted. Things gotten a little out of control. And uh, we need to kind of get back to the essence of Advent, which is what we're going to look at today is really the essence of it, which is God has come Emmanuel. His name is Emmanuel. Matthew 1 gets us back to the essence of Advent which is God is with us. Today, we want to really simply, but hopefully deeply look at that idea 
that God is with us. Today as we look at the essence of Advent, the essence of it, we want to break down that word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So today, the three points of that, God, Emmanuel is God who has come down with us. He's come to be with us, alongside of us, and finally us, how that truth transforms us, how that truth can shape us. Uh, So those three things, and we want to start with this idea of God coming down. Throughout this series, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is one of the four Gospels, and Matthew begins the story of Jesus by doing a lot of backstory. Before we get to Jesus, Matthew wants to give the backstory of Jesus. That's why there's a whole genealogy, a whole list of names. We look at the ancestors of Jesus. And even as we get to the birth of Jesus, he does a backstory of right before what happens. That's why in verse 18, Matthew tells us about Mary and Joseph. And Matthew tells us before the arrival of Jesus, Mary and Joseph were not actually married. They were engaged to be married. Now, in ancient times, engagement was more serious than engagement today. In fact, it was so serious that if you broke off an engagement, it was considered a divorce. So it was something serious. They were in a serious uh, state of commitment. Uh, The wedding was right around the corner. Would they be husband and wife? But before that news, uh, we hear uh, a problem. Uh, Joseph realized, finds out that Mary is pregnant. This is before their wedding, by the way. This is before they were husband and wife. And Joseph knows he has not been with Mary. They were not intimate. That's a problem for Joseph. You know, for most men in a similar situation, if they found out that their fiancé was having a baby that was not theirs, they would probably flip out. Uh, They would get angry. You might think that Joseph would be tempted to... To publicly humiliate her, you know, to flip out, to put her on blast, to tell everyone publicly what she had done. That was a temptation probably for Joseph. But Joseph, he doesn't respond like that. This is what he does in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph, realizing that Mary is going to have a child that's not his, doesn't want to put her on blast. He doesn't want to shame Mary. So he says, I'm going to quietly divorce her. We're just going to quietly go our separate ways. I'm going to let her be. And that's Joseph's plan, but his plan is interrupted. In verse 20, an angel visits Joseph in a dream. And the angel essentially says two things. First... The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, uh, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's done nothing wrong. Uh, Stay committed to her. Keep the ring on her finger. Uh, Become Mary. Mary. Continue to take her as your wife. But secondly, and more importantly, he explains the reason for that. He says, the child Mary has... Is not yours. We know that. You're not the father of this child. God is the father of this child. This is 
extraordinary, mind-blowing truth. Joseph, you're not the father. God himself is the father of Mary. That's what it means that the Holy Spirit has come upon her. Uh, In fact, the reason why Joseph is not allowed to name the child is because in the ancient times, the father, only the father had the right to name the child. That's why God the Father names the child, not Joseph. He gives him a name. He says through the angel, you will call his name Jesus. Because, as he explains, he will save the people from their sins. Uh, the name Jesus is, uh, means Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means, literally. Yahweh saves. And what uh, God is saying to Joseph is this, is that ultimately, you know, in the Old Testament, only God saves. God's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. And the name Jesus is explained. He will save his people from his sins. And by saying that, what God is saying to Joseph is Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate who will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a profound theological idea, which means God saves. God is, Jesus is God incarnate who has come to rescue his people. Uh, The other name that Jesus has given is Emmanuel. This is in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel is this idea that God is with us. It, the name Emmanuel only makes sense if Jesus is God. It only makes sense if Jesus is God. Because his, that name Emmanuel means God with us. That name of Emmanuel means God Almighty has come down in Jesus to now be with his people. Uh, the incarnation means that God has taken on flesh. It's something extraordinary which no other major religion claims. Secular historians see Jesus as a historical figure. He was human, uh, and he nothing more than that. Uh, Islam, for instance, sees Jesus as a great prophet, but he's not God. He's a messenger. He's a prophet like Abraham, but he was not God. But only Christianity says that Jesus is God himself who has come down in flesh, there are a lot of people who understandably disbelieve that happened. They have a hard time because they might say, well, anyone can claim they're from God or our God. What makes Jesus different? And that's why Matthew, understanding that, that's why he gives the whole backstory. And that's why also he gives all of these texts in the first few chapters from Isaiah and all the prophets. The Bible, the Old Testament has hundreds of detailed prophecy about where the Messiah would be born, uh, his character, how he would die. All of these details which are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus cannot control where he was born or how he would die. All of those things show us they are, they are uh, proofs of his deity. You know, when you understand Jesus' deity, it unlocks everything else about Jesus. When you understand Jesus, God explains his miracles. A lot of people have problems with Jesus' miracles. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. And he could do that because he's God. Because he's God, he 
He could do all these miracles. Jesus forgave people their sins. And only God can forgive people their sins. It explains his ability to do miraculous things. His ability to forgive people their sins. It also explains the historical impact of Jesus' life. You know, we measure time by Jesus' birth. Billions upon billions of people in every generation have claimed that Jesus has changed their life. Today, billions of people from across cultures, four corners of the earth, have testified that Jesus has changed them. And how can you explain any of that except for the fact that Jesus is not an ordinary human person? He's not a, just a messenger. He is God incarnate. He's God himself who's come down. The idea that Jesus took on flesh tells us about the extraordinary heart of God and who he is. It's like if a human being uh, decided that they were going to reduce themselves and become an ant, give up their strength, their, all of their abilities, and reduce themselves to be an ant to save an ant colony. Who would do that? Who would, uh, who would become vulnerable like that, that any person could crush them? And that's even just a glimmer of what God has done in taking on flesh. J.I. Packer, the theologian, he says this, God became man, the divine son became a Jew, the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child, the babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as a truth of the incarnation. Packer talks about the babyhood of the Son of God. You know, babies, they are helpless. They can't even roll on their back. Uh, they need to be fed and changed and taught to talk. Uh, and the idea that the almighty infinite God became helpless, needed to be changed and fed, is beyond comprehension. The timeless God, eternal God, stepped into time and space. The almighty became weak. And why is that? Why, why would God go through the lengths to do that? And here's the second point. Uh, Jesus is God, but the reason he did that was secondly to be with us. To be with us. Uh, in Greek mythology, uh, the gods would often come down very in a temporary way just for a minute. They cause all kinds of chaos and they'd go back to the heavens. But Jesus is not like, it's like they were bungee jumping. They're here for a second, they back up, back up to the heavens. But in Jesus, God did not just come down for a moment, but he has come down to be with us in a profound way. That's what Emmanuel means. Another way to look at it is in the Gospel of John, John 1, 14. This is the way John puts it. It says in verse 14, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. The word dwelt in the Gospel of John means tabernacled. It literally means that. It says that Jesus literally pitched a tent and he lived with us. And he was with all of his people. Uh, Jesus didn't commute from heaven. He didn't have one foot in, one foot out. He didn't do ministry and go back up to heaven. He moved into our neighborhood. He moved onto our block. He pitched a tent and he lived with us. He's with us in every sense. The word with, that simple word in the Gospels is a profound idea. You know, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, we just read the first chapter, uh, there's this idea of God, Jesus, with people. Uh, for instance, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus reclines at a table and he eats with pimps and prostitutes. What would today be known as pimps and prostitutes. He doesn't just preach to them and, and talk to them and give them sermons. It says, no, he went to their houses. He hung out with them. He had dinner with them. He befriended them. He lived his life with them. In uh, the disciples' life, what we see that is that Jesus spent all of his life with them. He's sailing on a boat with them. He's experiencing the storms of life with them. He's teaching them. He's walking with them. He's eating with them. He lives life with his disciples. Jesus wasn't like a celebrity speaker who spoke at stadiums and he retreated to his private enclave afterwards with a chauffeur. No, Jesus lived with all of the people. Uh, he, he ate with them and slept with them. He was uh, with ordinary people, especially the broken and the weak. He, he lived amongst them and he walked with them and talked with them and he touched them literally, it says in the Gospels. Jesus continues to be with us today through his spirit. In fact, the very last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, this is what he says. This is the very last thing in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 20. The last words of Jesus. What does he say? And behold what I am, what with you always, even to the ends of the age. That's the last thing Jesus says. He says, I am with you always. To the ends of the age shall I come back physically by my spirit, who I'm going to send. I'm going to be with you. What that means is that Jesus is with us. He's down here with us. In our pain and suffering. Jesus is with us in our failures. In Jesus we are never alone. You know, sometimes in my life, uh, historically for me, in my life, in my own journey of life, I've struggled with depression. It runs in my family. Depression for me is like a ghost that comes up and shows up uninvited. And sometimes I struggle with that. And often when I struggle with depression, sometimes I think to myself, I shouldn't be depressed. You know, I'm a pastor. Pastors shouldn't be depressed. And then I get depressed about my depression. Have you ever felt like that? I'm depressed already. And then I get depressed that I'm depressed. I'm like double depressed. I'm originally depressed, but then I get depressed that I'm depressed. I feel like I'm in a bigger hole than ever. And then I realize, as I've been studying this, that Jesus got depressed. You know, the Gospel of Matthew, in verse chapter 26, this is what Jesus says before he goes to the cross. My soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. 
That's something even darker than depression. He says, I'm very sorrowful to the point of being suicidal. And uh, when you read the Psalms, the Psalms for uh, one perspective of the Psalms, which is helpful, is the Psalms show us the inner life of Jesus. You know, and all throughout the Psalms, we hear Psalms that say, why so downcast, O my soul? King David is saying that, it's a picture of Jesus. He's saying, why so downcast? Why am I so depressed, O my soul? And I realize that all throughout the Bible, that the people of God and Jesus himself was depressed. And I realize that in my depression, Jesus is with me. You know, sometimes when I think, uh, sometimes when I'm depressed, it's not like Jesus is on high and he's saying to me from on high, don't be depressed. Sometimes we think that Jesus is on high saying, don't be depressed. But you know, the reality, the picture that I want to tell you today is that when you're depressed or when you're in a dark place, what God does in Jesus is that he gets a large, tall ladder and Jesus climbs down. Climbs all the way down. He looks me in the eye and he says, Dennis, I'm here with you. You know, he looks me in the eye. He looks you in the eye. He says, I've been there too. I, I feel you. I get you. And I'm going to be here with you. However long it takes you to be here, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I brought my backpack, my sleeping bag. I'm going to be here with you. I'm camping out here with you. And that's what Jesus does. That's really the incarnation. The incarnation is that God comes down to be with you. Wherever you are, in your dark place, in your depression, in your sadness. That's the heart of God and Jesus. If you have Jesus, when Jesus is with you, it gives you comfort, but it also gives you courage. You know, look what the incarnation, the promise of that did to Joseph. Joseph... Uh, we remember he was told by an angel of God that uh, the child was not his, but he was her, her, her fiancé is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But, and the angel says, well, just stay married, marry her, and have this child, support her. But think about what would have happened in Joseph's life right after that. Uh, they would have gotten married months afterwards, Right? Mary would have had that child just a few months after they got married. And almost everyone would know something happened. They would have said to Joseph and had known, Joseph, what happened? Did you have premarital sex, which would be shame? Or did someone else sleep with your wife before you got married? That would be even more shameful. Joseph would have faced ridicule. Imagine if Joseph tried to explain himself to his friends. And his friends saying, Joseph, what happened? You just had a, your, Mary just had a baby. You've only been married three months. Imagine if Joseph tried to explain, oh, guys, like, relax. You know what happened? Is the angel came to me and said, Mary's having God. That's what's happening. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. It's not my child. It's God. Imagine the ridicule Joseph's friends would have given Joseph. They, he, never, that, he never lived that down. Nobody would believe him, first of all. He would be shamed, ridiculed. But what did Joseph do? He knew that was going to happen if he said that, if he went along with his plan. But Joseph had courage. Why? He knew God was with him. He knew no matter what the ridicule, what people would say about him on whisper behind his back, 
that God got him. You know, when you believe that God is with you, you're going to have courage in life. You're going to go through some dark times. You're going to go through ridicule. People are going to whisper about you. But if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you've got God on your side, he's with you. We can be fearless. We can have confidence in life. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples on a boat when there's a storm. Fear not. Why? I am with you. I got you in the storms of life. The idea of the incarnation is God incarnate. He's come down. He's climbed down and he's with us. And here's the last thing. Is that when you believe that, when you understand that, it's going to change you. It's God with us. It changes us. Uh, Jesus is the great Emmanuel. He's come down. And what is he? What? Why has he come down? He's he's come for a couple of reasons. One, to save us. That's what the announcement is. It's Emmanuel. God is with us, but to save us from our sin. Jesus didn't come down just to hang out with us, but he has come to rescue us from what. Uh, the pastor and writer Scott Salas says this. We are all drunk on something, if not alcohol, then ambition, greed, entitlement, resentful grudges, pornographic images, a pardon and sin spirit, self-righteousness, etc. The only way to get sober is to get with Jesus. Saul says that everyone has some kind of master, something that's driving them, something that they're getting drunk on. It can be power or wealth. It can be sex, ambition. We're all enslaved to something. We all have some kind of addiction that we can't break. And even further than that, there is something that is driving us that will ultimately result in death. And what is Jesus saying? What is the good news of the gospel? The good news of gospel is that Jesus has come to rescue us from our sin, from ourself. He's come to take the debt that we owe to God, and he, is, he has taken it on himself, and he's paid it down with his life. He's come to give us a perfect record of righteousness. That's not us. He gives it to us, the perfect record of righteousness, and he has come to make us his children and to bring us home. And all of that is free. It's free. It's like a gift. It's a Christmas present that you get simply by believing, simply by trusting in Jesus. And that, that is first the thing that Jesus has come to do. He's come to rescue. He's come to bring you out of darkness into his light. He's come to make you his children. But the second thing after you receive that is he's come to lead you. Uh, we're called now to follow Jesus. You know, every time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells people about who he is, the good news. He secondly calls them to move out with him. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, right in the middle of the Gospel. That Jesus told his disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is always saying this. When you get into Jesus and receive his salvation, he says, hey, now follow me. Follow me. And the way to follow me is take up your cross. 
Live as I lived. Go where I'm going to this place of death. Go to the end of yourself and then you're going to find your true self. And what Jesus is constantly telling us to do is he's saying that as you follow me, I'm going to be with you. That's why the the whole uh, last promise in Matthew 28, I am with you, is in the context of what? The Great Commission. Jesus is saying, as you follow me to the ends of the earth, I'm going to be with you. You know, as we follow Jesus, as we, uh, as we walk with him, it's in that context that God is with us. And this morning, what God is calling us to follow him to is, is to emulate that incarnational love. Uh, J.I. Packer, who I quoted earlier, says this, For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind almost broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men. Talks about that incarnational sacrificial love. But then he says this, It's a shame and disgrace today that so many Christians avert their eyes to those in need. There are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making a nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on as best they can. Packer unpacks this idea of incarnation. God laid aside his glory, his privileges, his power, sacrificed him, for unlovely men. But then he says Christians by and large. They're not following Jesus in the same way. He says most of us are. We just want to build a very comfortable middle class life. We want a great family. We want to, we want to hoard. Keep, keep our privileges. And be in this comfortable place. And Packer says. It's a shame and disgrace. He says that if Jesus surrendered all of that. Laid it all down on the life for the least of these. Christians are also called to live the same way. We're also called to follow Jesus. Earlier I talked about Jesus coming down the ladder to be with us. And I would say this Advent season, do the same thing with people. You know, people who are down, who are depressed, who are discouraged. The holidays are filled with people like that. And what God's call is, is to emulate Jesus and go down the ladder and be with people. You know, being with someone who is broken, who is grieving, who is lonely, all you have to do is be with them. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need a counseling degree to be with someone. All you need to do is be present with them, sit with them, climb down the ladder and stay with them. That's what Jesus does for us. And that's the calling of those of us who are believers in jesus and jesus gives you a promise he says that when you're there in that dark place what i'm gonna be there too that's why jesus says where two or three are gathered together in my name what i'm i'm there with you as we minister to people in jesus name he says i'm with you i'm going to give you comfort and if you're in jesus when we uh die with jesus and and we express incarnational love with jesus we also know that Jesus resurrected from the grave. 
that when we die in Jesus, we also will be raised in Jesus. The incarnation and Easter, Christmas and Easter, they're inseparable. We're united to Christ. So if we're united to Jesus' incarnation, we'll also be united to his resurrection. And one of the things that uh, Paul Miller Miller in his book, The J-Curve, he talks about that idea that if we're in Jesus and we incarnate love and go down to be with people, we should be always looking for stories of resurrection. He talks about that in his own life. He has a daughter who has a serious disability. She's unable to speak on her own. She needs a computer. She types, it, types on her computer and it vocalizes her words. She also has a serious learning disability. And she says when she was a teenager, she would wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and just pace. She'd go up and down the stairs. She'd open and shut her door. And he said that him and his wife would just take turns yelling at her in the morning. Like, go to bed. Go to sleep. And this would happen day after day, month after month, until finally Paul Miller decided he's going to get up. And when she did that, he's going to pray with her. He would pray for her, pray for her pacing. And he says that for the first few months, nothing happened. That's often what happens in prayer, by the way. Uh, We pray, and it seems like nothing happened until something happened. You know, praying finally stopped. And then he says in the morning, he began to ask her to pray. And she started praying through her computer, vocalizing her prayer. And he says that her prayer life blossomed. She would start to pray Thanksgiving for everything, for Disney, for his parents, for her parents, for her aides. Thanksgiving that God saves her, saved her. She says right now uh, she loves to pray for people. She, would, she often prays for people by putting their, her hands on them. She prays for people. She says she loves to pray especially for angry people because she struggles with that. And Miller says in his book that only when he went down into the the place with her of darkness and he was with her that he began seeing stories of resurrection. Her life in Jesus, when we die, will eventually be resurrected. Not just in the life to come, but in this life. God promises, I'm going to be with you. You know, this Advent season is a season of going down, being with people, uh, praying with people who are in dark places. And in that place, God is with us, Jesus is with, with us. And the promise is that if you go there and if you stay there, there will always be resurrection. The stories of Jesus, you can read this throughout the gospel. Jesus is with people. They're sick. They're dying. They're hungry. They're broken. But if you're with Jesus long enough, he's going to resurrect you. He will feed you. He will heal you. He will pierce through the darkness and bring his light. And that will start happening in this life and ultimately and finally in the life to come. Please join me in prayer. Father, God, this this morning we come to you with a lot of our own grief. And we come to you with a lot of our own sadness and tragedy. And we are not ashamed. We're not ashamed to tell you that we so desperately need you. But this morning we also remember that you're with us wherever we are. Whatever dark place we are in, we thank you that you come down, you 
bring a large ladder and you're down here with us. And I pray that in this dark place, God, that you would bring resurrection. You'd bring healing. You'd bring restoration. And Father, as we come out of that with you, help us also to bring comfort and resurrection and hope to other people who are in the midst of darkness. God, we pray with hope that in the midst of darkness, your light will shine on us. That as we go down to death, we'll experience life. Pray that we'd be your ambassadors who will not be content with aspiring to live a comfortable life. But just as Jesus gave away his privilege, we would forsake many of our own privileges to minister to people. Convict us. uh, Turn our life upside down. But give us the hope that as we do that, you're with us so, so profoundly. Give us the joy and the hope of resurrection in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.